Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Hello. Hello, hello. Hey, it's our last Bible study of 2022. Can you believe that? Man, it has happened fast. So yes, today is the last of our Rector's Bible study for 2022. We're going to take a three-week break, and then we're going to be back on January 11th in 2023. And so that schedule, I believe, is on the bookmarks for this fall. Um, Bub's working on the bookmarks for the spring. Um, but just know we're going to keep on in 2 Samuel. Today we're looking at 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. And then we're going to keep going 7 and beyond on January 11th. And so that's going to give you all a chance to catch up and read some of the things that you haven't been reading. I know you. Um, and so then maybe even read ahead and you'll be so ready for the new year. Just a quick couple notes. We've got some wonderful things planned over these next few weeks as we prepare for Christmas, finish up Advent and prepare for Christmas. On Sunday night, eh, Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m., we're going to have a Christmas lessons and carol service in the church. It is so good. I really can't I really cannot commend this to you more. Um, I've heard a little bit of one of the rehearsals. It is it's beyond. And so I hope you will make plans to join us. If you cannot physically be here, we are live streaming that service at four o'clock on Sunday. But I just I just want to tell you, live stream is great, but it is absolutely plan B. All right. Plan A. When, it, when you're talking about music, being in the space and the feeling of the music around you is twice as good as what's online. Online's good enough. It's good enough. But if, you, if it's really just like, eh, do I drive there? Do I not drive there? Because it really, really is great. And so that's going to be 4 o'clock on Sunday. And that's really what gets us into that mode of Christmas. So we'll do Advent 4 in the morning. We'll do Lessons and Carols at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And then just a little something fun. I think some of you know Michael Harmuth, who is a priest on staff here for years and years and years, contributed to a book of Bible stories for children. Um, he was the lower school chaplain at ESD for decades, and he just had a wonderful way of telling stories to children from the Bible with his New York accent. It was brilliant. And so we kind of recorded him telling some of those stories, edited them because Lord knows they needed to be edited, and down into a little book of stories for children. And then our artists here at the church did all the art for a book that's a big storybook for kids. It's so, so sweet. I know many of you have already purchased that book, but if you haven't, or if you need another copy, or if you need a Christmas gift for somebody, Michael will be at Interabang Books on Lovers just a minute from here on Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. signing the books. And so if you want to grab one from him, just go by and say hi. He'll be at Interabang Saturday at 10.30 a.m. So swing on by. And if you cannot be there then, we are still selling them in our bookshop. And so grab a copy before Christmas. All right. I like questions, so reminder, ask them as we go. Let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to celebrate once again the birth of your Son, we ask that this morning, for this hour, you set us apart. You help to make space inside us for your spirit to fill us up so that we can be inspired and transformed once again. We are on a journey together, and we need you to help us grow 
and become more and more the people you created us to be. As we study your word, may we become those hands and feet of love you call us to be, helping to spread your kingdom here to everyone we meet. In this season, we ask your special blessing and presence upon all those we hold in the silence of our hearts who need your healing touch the most, in particular those who are at the, near, at the end of their life. May they be uplifted by our prayers and reminded of your presence every step of the way. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, gang, we are in 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. We've got three sections today. The first is David is anointed king over all Israel. So we are finally at the point where David is king over the entire thing. Number two, Jerusalem is made the capital of the unified kingdom of Israel. And number three, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to the new capital at Jerusalem. And so before we really get rolling, I want to just remind us of the context and how, what has brought us to this point. The Israelites have been out of Egypt and into Canaan. They have spread around and formed their tribes. And for a long period of time, multiple generations, they did not have a unified leader. Instead, they were broken out in all of their different tribes, all over what is today Israel, Syria, Jordan, kind of all of that area. And they were not alone. Remember when they came into the Promised Land from the wilderness out of Egypt, they had to essentially push people out of the Promised Land. Well, those people went somewhere. And so they're all around the Israelite tribes. And there are groups like the Philistines in particular that just cause a lot of trouble. And so politically, militarily, economically, unifying the tribes is simply a good idea. That unification begins under Saul and is shifted a bit more under David, but David is only the king of Judah for a number of years. David does not become the king over all of Israel until essentially Saul's house falls apart. So we heard last week there are two kings for a little period of time, and Saul's son ends up falling apart and then being killed. And so the tribes that were not under the umbrella of David's kingship for those seven-ish years now then come to David and tell him they want him to be their king too. That should sound to you like it's a bit fragile. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the fragility of that unified kingdom. And of course, we know because we know the history that the unified kingdom under David only exists for one more king, David's son Solomon. After Solomon dies, they fall apart again. And the unified kingdom of Israel essentially doesn't exist again until after World War II, when Israel is created by the United Nations following the end of the war. And so we've got this gigantic gap where Israel really doesn't exist as we know it beyond David and Solomon's kingship. One can argue that Israel sort of exists in a unified state around the time of Jesus's lifetime. And that's not a bad way to understand it, but not quite with the autonomy that it had under David and Solomon and that it has today. It was really a vassal state of Rome and of Greece before that. And I mean, we can talk about that some other day. If you want to, like all the Western Civ all at once in that region, we can do that at some other time. But just know that when we enter here and David is asked to be king of the unified kingdom, that's a moment in time that is super brief. 
and it really doesn't happen again until less than 100 years ago. Okay, any question about like the big old arc and context of where we are kind of in this historical moment before we get into the specifics of chapters five and six? Okay then, let's go. Chapter five, David is anointed king over all Israel. So as I, as I noted, David has been king of Judah. So the steps of David's life includes uh, the youngest brother and a little nobody who gets plucked out of Jesse's house, who then goes and kills Goliath and becomes famous, essentially. David is anointed in that moment to be king at some point. That's decades ago at this point. Not days, not months, decades. And so David remains the anointed future king under Saul. Then after Saul's death, David becomes king of Judah. King of Judah may mean king only of the tribe of Judah. It might mean king of a few other tribes that were calling Judah, and it's a little unclear. But David is only king of a portion of Israel. Those loyal to Saul remain part of a different kingdom. All the tribes now come to David in Hebron and call for his kingship over Israel. Once again, we see that God's anointing needs to be supplemented or affirmed by human choice. And so as we've noted before, there's a moment where God's choice and human choice come together, and that's when David really becomes the king over all of Israel. So even though God anointed David, not quite finished with that process. The people need to consent. And I said last week, we still see that. And you'll see that when Charles becomes, is coronated, this both and moment. It's God's choice and it's human's choice. Now David's kingship is something that comes to him rather than something he goes to get. And that's really important for us to note about his character. This entire year, I really want us to know all the details, yes, but I want us to really dive into the person of David, the character of David, because it's his character and the way that the Israelites understand his character that ultimately inform the way in which the people in the first century begin to understand who Jesus is. And so David's character is, yes, a military leader for sure. He has been very successful that way. He responds to become king of Judah, yes, but then he kind of stays in Judah, sort of satisfied. David remains king of Judah until Saul's house completely falls apart. And even then, David doesn't go to those people and say, hey, how about I be king over everybody? They come to him seeking after that kingship. So Israel has been on this gradual slope of seeking a king for generations. We had that period of the judges, where there was no king, but there were people who took the lead. This is not working, we need a king. And of course, Samuel, if you might remember, said, no, you're not supposed to have a king. God is your king. And the people still said, well, we still want one. And so they're still shifting toward that period where they will have a single king over them all. When the people show up, David agrees. I mean, I'm not entirely sure why someone would disagree, but David 
says yes in a relatively generous way. It is remarkably humble of him, given that he seems to have a track record of kind of going and fighting and getting whatever he wants over and over again, that he never did go from Judah to the rest of Israel and claim kingship over them. He waited for them to come to him and then accepted their request to be king over all of them. That is a very important character difference between, say, someone like Saul, who probably sought unified kingship and just couldn't get it together. All right, let me see. I noted earlier the fragility of this unification, and some of that has to do with the process by which David becomes king. As I said, the people come to David and ask him to be the king, and so David does not simply conquer all the tribes. He really almost brings them together in a nice, fragile balance of equality under one umbrella. I think that I'm going to say this twice today. Much of what we can understand about David as a unifying figure to Israel is in a way how, say, a George Washington unified the colonies here in America. Um, we have, and it flares up every now and then, and it's, we're kind of in a period of flare right now, where the states resist a unifying federal identity in the U.S. And then we go back and forth. We kind of swing over to states want what they want, separate from the nation, and then we swing back over to there's unified kind of federal identity and that sort of stuff. And that's a balance that we have to hold in tension because it's not automatic and it's not easy and it's something we have to choose over and over again. And in a sense, the way that the colonies unified was not because they wanted to, it's because they kind of saw that they needed to in order to grow and in order to become independent as a nation. And the tribes of Israel see a similar kind of political benefit here. They all come under the throne of David, not necessarily because they love David or think David's great, but because they understand they are stronger together. If the 12 tribes unify, now they can resist the Philistines and the other groups that are all around them trying to get the land back in a very um, effective way. That kind of unification can break apart if people do not choose it again and again, or it can break apart if leaders do not help maintain the unity. And we see that after Solomon, the kings simply do not understand how valuable the unity is. And so they break apart. And then, of course, we see generations later that Assyria and Babylon, respectively, sack Israel and Judah as separate kingdoms. Is it possible that had they remained unified, neither Assyria or Babylon could have overwhelmed them because they were stronger together? Maybe. But because they split in half, they were just weak enough to where they could be overwhelmed. Okay, I think that's probably enough. We're going to talk about, a little bit more about Washington in a minute because it still is a good um, metaphor for us. Questions so far in section one? All right, let's go to section two. Jerusalem is made the capital of Israel. Let's actually look at the scripture. We're going to look at chapter five, verse six. Chapter five, verse six. 
David and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David. David had said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, those whom David hates. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And so we'll pause here to say that David is very savvy. David is a king because the people asked him to be. And as David leans into his kingship, he is very smart about how he represents the unity of Israel. It's hard for us to even imagine, but at this point in the story, at this point in history, Jerusalem doesn't matter at all. Jerusalem is a backwater nothing. Nothing is there. David has been in Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem, and Saul made his kind of home in Gebeah, which is north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is essentially a truck stop between Gebeah and Hebron. And so David goes to Jerusalem and claims it as a capital. The Jebusites who were there at the time were apparently holding that little town pretty easily because Jerusalem is on a hill. And so if any of you have ever been to the Holy Land, you know that Jerusalem is essentially surrounded by a valley. If you've heard of the Kidron Valley, that's one of the valleys around Jerusalem. And it's surrounded by a number of hills, including the Mount of Olives. I call them hills because if any of us went and were looking for mountains, we would be sadly disappointed. I think in that area of the world, maybe it is a mountain. For us, it's barely a hill. And so you have a number of little mounts all around, one being Jerusalem, surrounded by others, including the Mount of Olives. It's a very small area. Jerusalem is tiny. The old city of Jerusalem is something like one square kilometer. It is little, but it's on top of a hill. And this story seems to imply that it's pretty easily defensible, which it will prove to be over time, because you have to go up to get to it. So we all understand why castles were always built on tops of hills, because you could defend against people attacking you so much easier. The problem being, water is typically not on the top of a hill. And so Jerusalem had to figure this out over time. If you go today, you would see places like the Pool of Siloam or the Pools of Bethesda. And of course, we know stories of Jesus doing healings there. Before Rome got a hold of it and engineered it all, those were the best sources of water for the people who lived in the city of Jerusalem, but they did not have the technological advances of Rome in order to bring the water into the city very easily. So well, uh, this story seems to imply that David basically showed up and the Jebusite said, you can't attack us because we're up on a hill. And David said, okay. And so he just claimed the water source and waited them out. And so David essentially didn't do some big battle for the land. He just choked them off. And then they ultimately gave in. David claimed the city and made it the capital. So up to this point, Jerusalem doesn't matter. Now Jerusalem matters. But what is it called? The city of David. David is the unifier 
of all the tribes. So notice, David did not use any of the names that may have signified a particular tribe over another tribe, or may have signified that one tribe's region or existing city is somehow more important. He goes to a city that doesn't matter to anybody, and he calls it the city of David because he represents the unity of all the tribes. And so Jerusalem now is very much representative of a fragile unification of all the tribes. As I said, I'm gonna mention it again, this is exactly what happened with Washington DC in America. The only reason Philadelphia is not the capital of the United States is because Philadelphia already mattered. And when Washington became president, he was savvy enough to know that in order to maintain this fragile unity, they needed a common space. And so luckily, there was a swamp no one wanted to live in right off the Potomac River. And so they named it after their first president. It was only a year into Washington's first ter term as president and named it for himself. Washington DC was built on a piece of land no one wanted to live in. I mean, you ever been to DC in the summer? It is humid, crazy with mosquitoes and all kind of grossness because who wants to live there? It's kind of like Houston. And so, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> um, such a Dallas snobby thing to say. Um, so in the same way that Washington unified the colonies because who cared about Washington? Like nobody had claim over it. And so that began to represent a unity that had not existed previously. David does the same thing here. He goes and picks this random place that just happens to be between the two places where Saul and David had their previous kingships and names that the new capital. And he begins to unify the people in a very specific way. All right. Mm. I want to talk for a moment about servant leadership. In verse 12, we hear that David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. I want us to note that once again, David's character is being developed by the storyteller in a very specific and intentional way. David is not described as someone who goes out and gets what he wants. I do not want to say that David isn't ambitious. I do think David is ambitious, but in a particular way. I think militarily David wants his own security and his own autonomy. But in a political sense, David's not looking for power. The way the storyteller tells the story, David perceives that God is doing something through him, but why? For the sake of God's people. That one idea is critical to the way David understands his own kingship and then the way in which people begin to understand Jesus in the first century. In other words, David is king, but it's not about David. David has a particular set of gifts and skills God gave him and God wants him to use. And David says yes to using those gifts in a particular way that benefits the people. It's not in order to benefit David. That idea is something that we, I hope, can understand in the church. It is very, very common for us to talk about spiritual gifts. 
Well, when Paul writes about spiritual gifts in his letters, Paul's not creating this idea. The idea that God has put gifts in people and then calls people to use them for the good of other people goes way back, even before David. But David kind of epitomizes, in the way the story is told, the use of those gifts. Paul puts new language around them that then gives it sort of a Christian flair, so to speak. But the idea is the same. It is highly biblical that each one of us is given gifts and then we're called to use our gifts, but it's not to our gain. We may gain in the use of our gifts. That's not a problem. But the primary reason we are to use our gifts is to help other people, to serve other people, to benefit God's people writ large. We see that very specifically here with David. As the chapter ends, we get a very interesting set of fights against the Philistines. As one might assume, the Philistines know what's going on in Israel. The Philistines, who have been the antagonist of Israel in all of these stories, are watching the tribes unify under David. Remember, they know all about David. David came on the scene when, they killed, when David killed their champion, Goliath. But then David has, over the years, gone back and forth to Philistia and gotten to know all of them. Remember when David fled from Saul and he took sanctuary with the Philistines and he even was going to go with the Philistines into battle? We're not entirely sure why, but David, had, David never fought against Israel. And so could David have meant to be like a Trojan horse in the Philistine army as they go to fight Israel under Saul? Maybe. We don't know because the Philistine chief said, you can't come with us. You're an Israelite. And even though the king at the time said, well, hey, David's a good guy and he's been known to us for a long time, the military chiefs all said, absolutely not. You got to go back. And that's when he went back to Ziklag. And then we had the whole thing about Saul dying and he was at Ziklag and chafed after the Malachites and all that good stuff. But the Philistines know David. So they're watching him. They're watching David become king over Judah. That's not such a great thing for the Philistines. And now, as David becomes king over all the tribes, and David unifies all the tribes in the new capital city, and David becomes stronger and stronger in that new capital city, the Philistines are taking note. And the Philistines don't like it. The stronger Israel gets, the more threatened the Philistines will be. And so the Philistines make a calculated military judgment that before David gets any stronger, they're going to go attack and hopefully undermine David, maybe even decapitate the leadership of this new unified kingdom. And so look at chapter 5, because the Philistines start to try, but it doesn't quite work. Chapter 5, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up in search of David, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. He said, the Lord has burst forth against my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the place is called baal Pedesim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. The Philistines try twice to attack the unified kingdom of Israel, but David twice defends Israel from their attack. I want to make one more note. 
David has, time and time again, questioned God about what he should do. But up to the point where David becomes king, David's always talking to God about whether he should or shouldn't fight somebody, whether he should or shouldn't fight Goliath, whether he should or shouldn't chase the Amalekites, whether he should or shouldn't defend Israel against the Philistines. Whenever there's a military moment, David talks to God. Did you notice that as David became king, both of Judah and of the unified Israel, it is never mentioned that David went and talked to God? Interesting that the way the storyteller tells this story, David's not talking to God about his kingship. David is talking to God about his military actions. Now, it could be, just, uh, just as a caveat, it could be that that's just sloppy editing on the part of the storyteller. It could be. But it does seem to have more intentionality than that to me. I do think that there is something about the character of David that represents something about a military action a whole lot more than kingship. Why I say that is because the expectation of the Messiah when we get to the first century and the misunderstanding of Jesus by so many people during his earthly ministry, I think has to do with this exactly, that there are so much tied up in the identity of the Messiah around military action because David's genuine spiritual gift was as a military leader. He was not a great guy. He was not a great king. He was often kind of silly, except on the battlefield. David is over and over and over again, the best military person in this generation. And so when the prophets later begin to talk of Messiah, there is this immediate connection to David. And the connection to David is not for wisdom, for kingship, for poetry. It's for military prowess. And when Jesus does not start overthrowing the Romans, people question whether or not he could even be the Messiah. And it takes, I mean, it takes at least 50, 60 years for Jesus' followers to begin to figure this out. Some may argue it takes a few centuries to actually try and parse out how Jesus could be the Messiah when he represented something so radically different than what David represents in this story. We see that in the progression of the Gospels. Mark starts out without any concept, really, of Christ. Mark's all about Jesus. Matthew and Luke, eh, still mostly Jesus. There's a little bit of Christ in there. But then when we get to John, John is all the Christ. That's why Christians tend to like John or put John on coffee mugs is because John's got the Christian of the Jesus a lot more than the other three do. When we talk about Jesus the Christ, we get the Christ from John. We get the Jesus from Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Put them together and we get a nice whole picture. But when you just are looking for one clever verse for a t-shirt, that tends to come from John. Okay. <laughs> Questions about all of this before we shift to chapter 6 in the Ark? Chickens. There you go. <laughs> so, in other words, because the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, 
the question is, you know, is this why the Jewish people thought the Messiah would be a military force? David looms so large in messianic prophecy that the understanding of David is really what gives character to the expectation of the Messiah. So let me say that differently. David and Solomon are unified kings. The kingdom splits in half, north and south. Both are taken into exile. I think I've said this in here before, but the northern kingdom had two tribes and the southern kingdom, I'm sorry, stretch that. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes. The southern kingdom had two. The lost tribes of Israel, you've heard that phrase? Those are essentially the 10 tribes that were in the north that Assyria sacked. The two tribes that mostly exist beyond the exile are the tribes that went into Babylon. That, that doesn't really matter in, except that the Judaism that existed in the second temple period, and by that what I mean is, after the exile, we have a, the temple rebuilt, that is the second temple, the first one was destroyed by the Babylonians, the second temple period goes from the end of the exile all the way to 70 CE. That's after Jesus' death and resurrection. That's when Rome sacks Jerusalem and destroys the, temper, the temple. There has never been another temple. There has only been those two. So we are now approaching 2,000 years after the second of the two temples was destroyed in Jerusalem. When the people are in exile, eh, not even. When the kingdom split, there become two lines of kings, some in the north and some in the south. In particular, the kings of the north were disastrous. They talk about hot mess. All of them were just terrible. They were bad. And so there were prophets who began to preach about how bad the kings were. The entire prophetic section of our Bible that follows all the histories are prophets who either preached before the exile, during the exile, or after the exile. They were all exilic prophets in some way. All of their preaching and all of their prophecies were about a return to the glory of Israel under David. And I say all, not, not all, but most. That was the gist of all the prophets, is that Jerusalem has devolved. Israel has devolved. And at some point, God, who, has, who will remain faithful to us, all the prophets said, the people have been unfaithful to God. God remains faithful to us. And God's fidelity will bring Israel back to its glory under David. And so there is all the promise of a return to glory is connected to David. And all the promise of the return to glory is baked into this idea of someone will save us. That savior becomes Messiah. And the Messiah then takes on this huge identity within Judaism over the centuries so that when Jesus arrives, there are plenty of people who claim to be the Messiah. We often misunderstand 
that somehow Jesus was doing a new thing. Jesus was only one of many people who claimed to be the Messiah. It just so happens that Jesus, well, we would say Jesus was the true Messiah, but even if you want to be cynical, it's Jesus's messianic promises stuck. His followers went out and spread all of his teachings and those teachings evolved into a theology about the person of Jesus being very different than who the Jewish people expected. There had to be some kind of reconciliation between what the prophets talked about and who Jesus actually was. Because everyone understood the prophets kind of at face value that Jesus would be, or I'm sorry, would be another King David throw the Romans out and unify the kingdoms and build all this glory. But these people thought Jesus was the Messiah and he was very much not that. So then they went back and they started rereading the prophets. And then they started to see things in the prophets that gave them a much deeper understanding of what the Messiah was. So it's not that the prophets were wrong, it's that you could not take the prophets at face value. And you had to dig much deeper into what the prophets said in order to understand who Jesus actually was. Now, all of that is predicated on the belief and the faith of Jesus's messianic identity. If one did not believe that, which most of the Jews didn't in the first century, then Jesus was just one of the others who claimed to be the Messiah and wasn't. It was only because of the faithfulness and the, the, really the hustle of Paul among all of them and then the others to reconcile the prophets and the reality of Jesus as a person in a way that became so compelling. All of that sounds good, and then you put on top of it that, like any other good empire, Rome is not stupid. And so when Rome figures out that the Christians are not going away, they adopt Christianity as the religion of their empire in order to bring the Christians in so that they do not undermine their authority. That is, I mean, you've all heard the problem of Constantine. That's it, is that Constantine understood the political benefit of bringing Christianity in. And then you get the interweaving of Christianity and political power that just, uh, remains very problematic, um, which is one of the things that I like about what we try to do at St. Michael is no partisanship. We, we let everybody come in, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, and be reminded that we are all human and we are all imperfect. And whatever you are so convicted about in your politics, Jesus has something to say to you too. And so it's <laughs> equal opportunity challenger to whatever you think you know that is very true about the world. And that is what unifies us. So, okay, I'm done. I'll stop preaching. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> other questions or follow-ups? Mm-hmm. 
Do the Jewish people still hope for a military Messiah? So what do the Jewish people hope for in a Messiah today? <laughs> um, there is still a, an expectation of Messiah, yes. I don't... What I don't want to... I do not want to misrepresent the most common way to be Jewish in America, let's start there, as somehow pining for a Messiah. Um, th that is not the way that friends, that most of our Jewish friends here in America are functioning. They, they don't get together in synagogue every week and pray for the Messiah. That's not, that's not really it. Um, they, Judaism is, first and foremost, pragmatic. Um, Christianity is about much more about belief, and Judaism, like Islam, is much more about action. And so, not to say that either, both have belief and action, of course, but in Judaism, it's a whole lot less important what you believe, and it's a whole lot more important what you do. And so, for Jews, there is a, there is a sense about the world in which hoping for something or believing in something is kind of not really that valuable. Um, it's much more about what do we do now for our good, for the good of the world, for the good of the poor, for the good of whatever. And so you've got most Jews in America. That's why, I mean, if we're, if we want, I just said we're not going to be partisan, but that's why most Jewish people that we know are going to end up being kind of left of center politically because that's where you get a lot more desire for social justice and care for the poor kind of policy stuff. And they, that tends to be where Judaism lands is in a place of kind of, we gotta take care of people. Um, and we can have, I mean, I don't wanna get into policy discussions, but that tends to be where they land because of the function of their religious identity. It doesn't mean that they don't believe a Messiah is coming. They still believe in the prophets. If you go to synagogue and you um, participate in worship, you will often read from the prophets. Um, you don't often read from the history like what you see, like what we're doing in this year. So the prophetic identity of the future is still present. I want to distinguish that from what would be described of as a more Zionist identity, like what is representative in Israel today. Um, and I say that with the acknowledgement that most hardline Zionists in Israel are, it, that's the minority of the people in the nation of Israel, but it tends to be the most active group. And so the national identity of Israel tends to represent that more than a kind of moderate way of being Jewish. Most people in Israel, like in many other developed countries, are not actually that religious. They identify as Jewish much more kind of culturally than they do religiously, in the same way that most people who identify as Christian in America are more culturally Christian than they are actually committed Christian. So 
it's difficult to distinguish the difference between, say, a common American Jew and a Zionist Jew in Israel, because there are a lot of political dynamics at play there that don't really apply to their theological approach to understanding things like the prophets. That's as specific as I want to get because it's really, it's not my expertise and I know that I can get messy if I get more specific. It's sort of like saying, it's sort of like saying, you know, Christians believe this. Well, of course you can't say that. Um, so you can say a very broad, high-level thing, but when you start to go any lower, you are wrong before you even speak a word, really. Go for it. It's a great question. It's not so messy. Um, so question is, through, through history and especially through translations, has the Old Testament really become too much about the messianic identity of Jesus rather than about the time in which it was written? Does that sound right? Um, and it's some of the, our favorite verses. Favorite verses, oh, absolutely. So, mm-hmm. I, the quick answer is yes. It is, mm -mm. so as an Anglican Christian, I interpret the Bible with the acknowledgement that humans wrote it, but humans wrote it inspired by God to do so. So there's a fine line there. It is not literally God's word. For some Christians, it is. And so as an Anglican Christian, that's not what we think. However, the inspiration of the writings matter. We cannot, nor should we, say that the prophets, or, or anything in the Old Testament, was not written in such a way that we could see the promise of Christ in the writings. I think that's absolutely there. But I do not think any of these storytellers or any of these prophets had the Jesus we know in mind when they spoke or wrote what it is that we have received. It does not mean that God's presence in them and the Spirit did not inspire them in a particular way that, in hindsight, we can see the knowledge of Christ echoed. But I think we make the prophets out to be fortune tellers if we say, there, Isaiah's talking about Jesus. That, that's not it. And so part of what we do, and you see this when we do things like our lessons and carol services, where we do read particular scripture passages that seem to point to Jesus as we know him, but we have to hold intention 
that Isaiah wasn't thinking that. Isaiah was telling the people to stop doing bad stuff and behave, or something bad's going to happen. And then when something bad happened, he's saying, look, I told you something bad was going to happen, but even though you all stink, God still loves you and is going to do something about this situation and bring you back to him. And so we, of course, in our Christian theology, understand that the kind of the big arc of salvation is such that God made everything perfect. Humans messed it up. It's just who we are and what we do. And God tried in many different ways to help correct humans' mistakes by helping humans help one another. That just never quite stuck or worked. And so then... God, in his love, comes down to do it himself. Because ultimately, we cannot do it ourselves. We need God to create the bridge in which we are unified once again. Nobody in the Old Testament thought that. Nobody. And so when you talk about, you know, by his wounds we are healed kind of stuff in the prophets, no. That was put on top of the story of Jesus later. Now, my one caveat there is the gospel writers knew their Old Testament. And so the gospel writers wrote the story of Jesus in a very particular way to make sure that everyone who read the gospels understood that God intended to do this from the start. We misunderstood what God intended. God never changed his mind. And that's why reading the Old Testament, it's very important for us to not ask the questions I say all the time. Don't ask the question, why did God do that? Ask the question, why did people think God did that? Why did God say that? Don't ask that question. Ask, why did people think God said that? Because it's the human misunderstanding that is most valuable to us as we go through this Bible study because every one of us misunderstands God many times in our lives. We have all been guilty of finding ourselves in some debate or some argument or some discussion where we are so very sure what God thinks. And we need to remember no amount of our sureness makes up for our lack of capacity to understand God completely. We never get it all. And so we need to take a step off of our little platforms and understand that we're all messy and we all misunderstand God. It does not mean some of us don't understand maybe a little bit more, but we only understand a little bit more when we hang together in moments like this, where we can really turn things up and tear things apart and look at things from many, many angles because God's gifts are in every person. That's the inconvenience of Jesus that I talk about all the time. Jesus reminds us that God created every person in his likeness. Even the ones that really, really are bad and annoying and hurtful, all created in God's image. And so that person we really, really don't like, still created in God's image. They may not reflect as much of it as we wish, but still, that's the love that we're called to share. And so do not misunderstand the prophets as being fortune tellers. But the prophets in their inspiration 
had little nuggets of the truth of what God would ultimately do through Christ, even if it wasn't the majority of what they talked about most of the time. Other questions? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't have enough time for this. Um, let's see. I want you to know, I was going to draw today, but I don't have time. Okay, so maybe next time. What I want you to know is that David brings the ark to Jerusalem. Sorry, section three, chapter six. David brings the ark to Jerusalem to really solidify and anchor his capital city. Remember the ark. The ark was built out in the wilderness with, at Sinai. It holds the tablets of the commandments. It's got the winged angels, and it's held by the rails of wood and all that good stuff. The ark, where's the ark been, right, you may ask? Well, the ark's been kind of all over the place. So the Philistines took the ark at one point. David went and got the ark back from the Philistines, but David is not a holy man. I mean, we've kind of said this many, many different ways. David is not holy. David kind of dumps the ark off because he doesn't have anywhere to put it. And so David goes and gives the ark to Abinadab. And so David, I mean, genuinely, the Philistines are on coastal. If you imagine, this is what I was going to draw for you. If you imagine Israel, right, looks like this. Um, over here is the Mediterranean. Here is Jerusalem, kind of in the middle of the country. If you were to go directly from the Mediterranean all the way west to Jerusalem, you would pass through Philistine, the Philistine region. Philistia is right there on the coast. If you imagine where Tel Aviv is today, Jerusalem's here, Tel Aviv's a little farther north on the coast. South of Tel Aviv along the coast is where Philistia was. So the Philistines are um, port people. They're, they're sailors. They have boats, and that's how they get their wealth. They would attack Jerusalem from the west, and so David brings the ark from Philist Philistia into kind of unincorporated Judah, I don't know, and he sort of dumps it with Abinadab. So Abinadab's house hold held the ark for 20 years. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. That doesn't make any sense. But Abinadab's got the ark, and David decides, now it's time for the ark to come to Jerusalem. And so I want to read you a story from chapter 6. David's going to get Abinadab, or David goes to Abinadab's house and says, thanks for hanging on to the ark for me. I need it now in Jerusalem. And so Abinadab's sons, Uzzah and Ahio, help carry the ark on a big I don't know, um, cart, thank you. Um, I imagine this looks sort of like a hayride, you know, um, they put the ark up on the hayride and then they're dragging it to Jerusalem. So here we go, they are over, they are west of Jerusalem, going toward Jerusalem to bring the ark. Okay, chapter six. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up the ark from there which is called the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went in front of the ark. 
David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah. So that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Okay, so let me just put this in context. So you may remember way back when we were doing Exodus, you cannot touch the ark. That is the rule. It's been the rule the whole time. And Uzzah and Ahio are helping carry the ark on the cart and the oxen shake the ark. Think about this. You're next to the ark of God. This is holy. And you imagine Uzzah and Ahio, they have grown up 20 years with the ark being in their household. Their household has been blessed because of the ark's presence. That means they love this thing. This is a special thing. It looks like it's about to tip off the cart because the oxen shake the cart. What would anyone do? Try to keep it from falling off onto the ground. But you cannot touch the ark. And so Uzzah tries to steady it and is struck dead. What is interesting, I don't want to talk about that. Don't ask why God did that because that's not the right question. That is not the point. I want to talk about David was mad. Do you note that? David was angry that God would do that because it seemed so dumb. Uzzah was a good guy, doing something good for Israel, and he was struck because he touched it? So what does David do? David says, stop. So, like, stop, Uzzah's dead. No, 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 we're not doing this. And so he looks around, and Obed-Edom's house is over there, and so he says, leave it with him. David just leaves the ark on the way to Jerusalem with Obed-Edom for three months. What a crazy moment this is. David, who is trying to establish his authority, establish Jerusalem as the capital, knows politically and religiously, if he gets the ark in Jerusalem, man, Jerusalem is really important now. But God strikes Uzzah down, or whatever happens, and David gets mad and dumps the ark on the side of the road with this Obed-Edom guy. Now, God blesses Obed-Edom for holding onto it, but can you just imagine being Obed-Edom? I mean, so everybody's out, right? 30,000 people. David is dancing, and it's tambourines and castanets. I mean, it's like a parade. And so Obed-Edom probably come out in front of his house, and he's like, look at the parade. And everyone's dancing, and the castanets, and the tambourines, and everything like that, and the ark's like passing by, and then it stumbles, and Uzzah touches it. Uzzah dies. David gets mad and says, you keep it. That is not, not what I would want. But this man says, okay, and holds on to it for three months. So the short of this story is David does come back and get it and brings it into Jerusalem. But we're going to have to cover that on January 11th um, because there is this very interesting dynamic of Michal, one of David's wives, getting mad at David for the way in which David brings the ark back into Jerusalem. And so we'll note that next week. But until then... 
do come to church. It's Christmas. You're going to love it. And I will see you there and have a wonderful holiday. Bye. <laughs>